You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. If you're here for the first time, we extend you a very special welcome. Not that the rest of you aren't welcome, but if it's your first time, a very special welcome. Um, You should know, if it is your first time, we always take a benevolence offering on the last Sunday of the month at the very end of the service. So just because we have two offerings today, that's not typical. It's only once a month. And it's for uh, needs, special needs that people have within our body and those outside of our body. We're able to help those in the community and show the love of Christ in that way. Uh, Galatians 6 talks about taking care first of the household of faith and then to all, doing good to all men. And it's talking about finances there in the latter part of uh, Galatians 6. So we'll be having that benevolence offering uh, again, I, it won't be mentioned again at, at the end of the service. Uh, one update to the prayer request in the bulletin. Uh, well, actually, two. Um, Mike Chapman's dad passed away last week. We haven't made that update yet, but uh, Mike and Vicky were there for the funeral, and they're back. So please be praying for them. As you can imagine, it's a difficult time. And Maureen Box's mom just uh, passed away as well, and they'll be going up for the funeral, leaving on. Tuesday, I believe, up to Ohio. So pray for them as they travel. Just so many needs, aren't there? Uh, It's a good thing that our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in this life. And that's what we're all about. John Tenbrink was talking about the opportunity that 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 the teenagers, the the, the students in our youth ministry are going to have to share the gospel. Well, today we're talking about how to share the gospel. John, by the way, told me before he got up here which three students it is that are working to teach him patience. I won't name those three <laughs> students, but uh, just pray about them. If you think you're one of those, you probably are. Let me go to Yes, middle schoolers, how sad you didn't get to stand up for about two minutes while everybody else looked at you. Shall we do that, middle schoolers? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I, was, I, I thought that was an awesome thing that John did to have them stand up. And you just, you, you, you're not aware that they're scattered all over the place. You know, we have students everywhere in here. And it was a great thing to say, this, this is our focus. Let's pray for these guys uh, today. So how would you answer the following question? What must I do to be saved? Probably you'd say something like, dude, what century are you from? I mean, asking a question like that, what must I do to be saved? But you're going to get that question one day, very likely, if you're a believer, it's going to be asked differently. How can I be right with God? How can a person have a relationship with God? There are all different kinds of ways that people would ask it, and I think it's the most important question in the world. And if that's the case, then the answer really ought to be right. Uh, Today marks the 15th sermon in our series, Engage the World with the Gospel. That's part 
of our purpose statement is part of why we exist as a church, why God established the church. Only one of three uh, big focuses, but it's, it's an important one. And we're spending our, our year, our school year, talking about what it means to engage the world with the gospel. So what does it mean for a person to be in right relationship with God, with the creator of the universe, and the one who determines whether people will be blessed or condemned for all eternity? Today, on this 15th sermon in this series, we begin to think about how to share the good news with those who need to hear. So, is there a formula to be followed, a plan to be executed? Well, yes and no. Yes, there is a formula of sorts, but it is given out in all kinds of different ways. Think about the Jesus' interaction with people who cared very much about being right with God. There were some people who were clueless, like the woman at the well. And there were others who were sadly and violently mistaken about Jesus' identity, like the, so many of the Pharisees and Sadducees who opposed Him and His ministry. Uh, there were some who felt they were already in good shape and they just wanted to justify themselves like the rich young ruler and others who desperately cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, like blind Bartimaeus. Some were hard-hearted like Caiaphas and some were curious like Nicodemus. When you study the methods that Jesus used to interact with people, you're surprised when you start saying, okay, now... Let me see where he uses this particular approach again. Almost never. If Jesus used the same approach twice, I'm not exactly sure what it was. He met people right where they were. The message was the same, though. It was the gospel message. It was what he told his disciples on the night before he was crucified in John 14, 6. I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, <laughs> if you want to go to heaven, you have to believe me. That's what he called them to constantly. Follow me as Lord of your life. Believe that I am who I say I am. And that I've come for the reason that I say that I've come. So when Jesus said this, he was speaking, of course, to his disciples. They already believed that he was the Messiah, although they were far from knowing everything there was to know about Jesus and his mission. In fact, this was the night before he was crucified. And the next day, they would say, what's going on? And they were scattered. They just had no idea that, was, that, that, that the crucifixion was actually going to happen, even though he had told them time and again. So there was so much more for them to know about Jesus. And look, that's only one of the reasons that we have spent 14 Sundays talking about what the gospel is before we start talking about how to present it to other people. Again, Scripture spends a lot more time in the New Testament telling believers, those who already believe what the gospel means to them, than it does saying, go out and share. The reason is, the more you know about the gospel, the more it just comes out. You can't help but share. And then we are absolutely given commands to take this word to others. So over the next two to three months, we're going to be talking about how do you interact with people? 
helping them to understand what it means to be a believer. Different circumstances, different issues that people have. A lot of it's covered in the New Testament, both in the examples that we see and also in the, in the commands that are given <laughs> about how to interact with people. So, our text today is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 6, chapter 6, verse 2. In just a moment, we're going to stand and read those last few verses in our text. Then we'll go back through and just briefly work our way through it. It's a, there's a rich treatment of evangelism in this text. Um, but our focus is going to be presenting the gospel today. And then again, it'll just go from there in the weeks to come. So, if you would please stand as we typically do as the scripture is read. And we're going to start with the very last verse of 2 Corinthians 5. You saw it on the screen earlier. And here it is again and go through 6-2. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. And in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you remember that from Hebrews? Over and over and over in our study in the book of Hebrews. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the truth of the text that we are going to read this morning. That you caused Jesus to become sin for us as he died on the cross. Our sin transferred to him in order that the righteousness of God, his righteousness, might be imputed or transferred to us. And so that we might have life for eternity. Open our hearts to this truth that we already know and believe and give us, Lord, help and understanding and, and, and discovering ways to share this truth with those who don't know Christ. So that they too may hear and believe. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Again, before we think about a, a gospel presentation, I want to just hit a few highlights from this text. Especially as it relates to outreach. There's so much uh, in this passage that will be left unaddressed. I, I got to tell you that. That uh, in preparation for this message, I was reading through uh, 2 Corinthians all the way up um, to, to where our text is. And, and 2 Corinthians is clearly, the I shouldn't say clearly, it, is, it, it seems to me to be one of the most sporadic, unorganized letters of Paul. If you follow it closely enough, you'll see that there is method to the madness and you'll see that there is a plan, there's a structure in what seems to be 
uh, disjointed arguments. But ultimately, Paul was defending his apostleship. And for Paul to defend his apostleship, his role as an apostle, he was defending the gospel. So don't read, ever read in the New Testament. You're like, well, why does Paul say it like that? That's a little bit. Why do you, why do you feel defensive? Well, because the very gospel itself was at stake. And so Paul was quite insistent that you respect the, the role to which God has called me. And therefore, uh, that you respect the gospel. There's a great deal, though, of application here for all believers. So let's look beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. In other words, God knows who I am. I hope you, you get that too. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, as is always the case, the context gives you more information than if you just pick it up in this verse. And in verse 10... He had been talking about the fact that we will all, all believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So, is the fear of the Lord, is Paul saying, because I know the Lord and I respect Him and I fear Him, I know He wants me to preach the gospel, I've got to preach the gospel. Or he's saying, I want others to know the fear of the Lord so that they'll be saved. More than likely, it's the former. He's saying, look, I've got to give an account to God. And knowing the fear of the Lord, I seek to persuade others. In other words, evangelism is expected for believers. By the way, most of this, if you would read some commentaries, you'd almost think, well, Paul's just talking about his apostleship and it really doesn't apply. Now, look, this applies to all believers, Applies to all of us. We are saved, therefore evangelism is expected of us. Verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. A lot of technical explanation that could be given here. Look, for our purposes today, again, Paul is defending the, apostle, uh, the gospel by defending his apostleship. And so here's what we can take from these verses. If you share Christ, people are going to think you're out of your mind. May as well get used to it. It's just part of the territory. People are going to think you're crazy. And that's a lot of fun, right? Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. And therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now look. Again. Just take this. In the context the all is speaking of believers. All believers have died and in our union with Christ we have been raised and we're expected no longer to live for ourselves but to live for Him. And that includes sharing the gospel of Jesus with those who don't know Him. Clear as mud. Uh, 
Hopefully that's the case. And one day it'll make sense. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Man, I can't, I can't tell you how much I love verse 17 when I was a young believer. And it was so true. My old life had passed away. The new had come. For those of you in home groups, you know that we've been talking about the culture of a church that is committed to evangelism. We're going through the 11 marks of a church with a culture of evangelism from Max Stiles' book simply called Evangelism. And this week we're thinking about a culture that affirms and celebrates new life. You know, I just think it's easy for churches to almost be afraid of new believers. We, we've settled in, we understand scripture, and it's sometimes uncomfortable because new believers just act like, well, they act like new believers. I mean, they're, they're trying to figure this all out. A lot of us older believers are trying to figure it all out. But there are certain things that we know, and it's like, oh, no, 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 we don't do that around here. Look, we, we need to celebrate new life in Christ. We ought to be excited. Can I encourage you never as a believer? I, I'm as tempted to do this as you are. When somebody says, oh, I was reading the other day, and it's, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I've known that for a long time. Don't do that. Be excited. Say, isn't that, I know, isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome to, to, to realize that God treats us in this way? Look, no matter how deep we go in the word, it all comes back to the basics. And no matter how basic we are, there is depth that is just unfathomable there. I always have trouble with unfathomable. I don't know why I try to say that word. On Sunday mornings. Because it's just that. It's beyond our comprehension. We want to celebrate any level of life. So I I want us to just take a moment and pray about that. So if you would, just, just pray with me. Father, thank you for new life in Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking after so many years that we're now experts on the Christian life. We may know more than we knew years ago, but, Lord, we're dependent on you. And just like Martin Luther said, we are nothing more than beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. May we be excited to see people come to Jesus. And make, Lord, our community a place that constantly marvels at new life. Lord, if you don't bring fruit, it's not going to happen, no matter how committed we are to sharing the gospel. But it is equally true that if we don't share the gospel, we won't see new life. May we be committed to doing that, Lord, to, to telling others about Jesus. And may we anticipate the fruit that you're going to bring in our body. Thank you for making us new creations in Christ. In his name. Amen. Verse 18. All this is from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In our helpless and hopeless condition, we were reconciled to God. Do you know why? Because somebody else cared enough to tell us that message. To tell us our need to be honest with us about who we are apart from the Lord. Well, that was my parents. Yeah, well, somebody told you about your need for Jesus. And now, all of us have been given that same ministry of reconciliation. What a, what a privilege. What a responsibility. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Same idea. Ambassadors for Christ. How would you feel if, if the president of the United States, former president or current president or one that you would prefer to either one of those from way back. Just, let's just say your favorite president ever. Abraham Lincoln called you in, you know, and said, I want you to take this message. You are going to be my ambassador, my emissary. I want you to go to China, to Iran, to Great Britain. You're going to take, this is the most important message I'm going to send in my entire term here. And you're going to send it. That, that would be quite an honor. Whatever that message might be, it pales in comparison to the message that we take from the creator, redeemer, God of the universe to people telling them, be reconciled to Christ. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you had to choose one verse in the Bible from which you were going to make a gospel presentation, what would you, what would you choose? If you, if you could only use one verse, John 3.16, um, Romans 6.23 might be one of those good ones, Isaiah 53.6, all of them would require a little bit further explanation. Say, well, here's the deal. This is the one I choose. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's the great exchange. And then we'll talk about it more later. And then in the first two verses of chapter 6, we're reminded of the urgency of belief that we read so much about in our study of Hebrews. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We have an urgent message to share with the world. So I want to spend the rest of our time today laying out some of the essential truths that need to be communicated when you're sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. 
Look, you may want to take note of the verses that I share today. Not all of them are going to be on the screen. And all the way, all the way through the rest of the spring, you just, just jot the, the passage down and go back and look it up. You know what it's like when you need a verse and you don't know where it is. There's so many wonderful verses in the New Testament, different ways that we, we get to share Christ or, or, or get to answer people's specific questions. So... Take some of these uh, down, if you would. It'll help you be better prepared if you learn where these verses are. Uh, look, in, in the past, you may have used uh, the Roman road or the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion or, or, or Matt Chandler's or Greg Gilbert's plans in, witnessing, in your witnessing adventures. And if so, you've had a good plan to follow. You've had some structure to share the gospel with people. And that's important. You need that structure when you're telling them what it means, how, how they can know God, what the gospel means and how they can know God. Most of the time, though, the gospel is either shared or believed in bits and pieces. Even if you get all the way through your presentation, most of the time people are just getting a little bit here or there. It's like, I get this today, I get that one next time. And one day when the, at the Holy Spirit's discretion it gets all put together it's a wonderful thing if you get to share it piece by piece by piece but don't feel too discouraged if you give someone the gospel and you say now do you understand that and they're like uh no or if you say okay jesus died for you and your only hope is to cry out for him and do you understand the gospel? And they say, yeah, you just do the best you can and, and hope everything will turn out all right. Look, sooner or later, nope, rarely does anybody get it the first time. Except for those people that I hear about that have these dreams that someone is going to, you need to meet this person. They have something important to tell you about me. Just like it happened in the book of Acts um, where Cornelius had this dream, go get Peter and and, and Peter had this vision, go to Cornelius and tell the gospel. I do think that happens, especially in the Middle East, uh, a lot today. I hear about those stories. I think talked about something like that last week that, that happened. But always the word of God, the presentation of the gospel has to be given in order for a person to be saved. I have never heard of anybody saying, oh, yeah, I know all about this. I, I had this dream and, and God told me about Jesus. no. It's someone will tell you about Jesus, maybe. But we have to tell them about Jesus. And so God will take this little bit today and that little bit there. And at some point, it'll all make sense. So that's why the presentation that I'm going to offer today is simply a guide. Five essential truths about the gospel for a guide to preach in the gospel is we're encouraged to do in Romans 10. And it's just going to be a way that we can engage people. That's what these points, that's the way, the reason they're worded the way that they are. It's with the intent of engaging people with dialogue about the gospel. So much of the rest of this series will be focused on different ways to interact with sinners and that's all of us before we know Jesus. And we're just sinners saved by grace after we know Jesus. But engaging people with the gospel. And, and look, if you're in a home group, multiply by the number of people in that home group the good ideas you get about sharing the gospel. Because 
we all have different ways, methods, techniques. And when you get to talk about it in a small group like that, it's like, man, that's great. I'm going to use that next time I'm in that particular situation. Or you can say, look, here's what happened the other day. And I had no idea what to say. What should you say in a situation like that? Lots of times you should say, I don't know. <laughs> I can't answer that. I, I understand your concern, but I, I'm just not able to answer it. Well, if you have held off participating in a home group, this is a good time to get connected. Let's get started with this presentation, beginning with this. If there is a God, we can only know him if he reveals himself to us. Now, I've gone and made some of you mad already, I'm sure. What do you mean, if there is a God? Of course there's a God. Well, not everybody believes there's a God. Remember, this, this is put together for the purpose of dialogue. And, and you just want to get people thinking about, if there's a God, then we need to know exactly what He expects of us, especially if, if, if all eternity is at stake here. Look, even those who, who believe that God exists don't know the God of Scripture. And when you ask them, well, let's just think about it. If there's a God, how do you think we can know Him? That, that question is a little bit disarming. It kind of puts you on a little bit on, on level ground. We'll talk a lot about finding points of connection as we go along, but it... it it's both disarming and provocative. It, it, it provokes them to think about God and how we can know Him and how we're going to communicate with Him and He with us. Um, and, and then as opportunity allows, you can say, look, if there's a God, I don't think any one of us is smart enough to understand Him unless He reveals Himself to us. I mean, just think of how many different views there are about God in the world. If there's a God, it seems... Safe to say that none of us is capable of just figuring him out on our own. Look, two, two of the most influential thinkers in Western civilization in the last five, six hundred years, Descartes and Kant, both said, I'm going to get alone. I'm going to put all outside influences, including the Bible, aside, and I'm just going to... In my mind, I'm going to figure out God. These guys have had enormous influence on the way the world thinks. And most people just accept that without any kind of interaction with the possibility that I'm not smart enough to figure out God. And how am I? If, if that's the case, shouldn't a whole bunch of people come to the same conclusion? But we all have our own different ideas. So when you engage people with this, say, look, if, if God exists, how can we know him unless he tells us who he is? I mean, if we could understand God on our own, that would sort of make us God, don't you think? Let me ask you, what did you think about God before you were saved or before you came to know him as well as you do after years of reading scripture and hearing biblically sound preaching about him? What did you think about him? Exactly, that's the point. We all have different ideas about who God is and what kind of role that He has in our lives. Most people's view of God is based on cultural perceptions or what they heard their parents say about God. And to help them understand that, that God 
has revealed himself to us through creation and through our consciences about our understanding of right and wrong and, and, and our desire for justice in the world. And, 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 and then specifically and very directly through Jesus and through his word. To, to help people understand that is then to help create space for the bad news that precedes the good news of the gospel. And the bad news is... The Bible tells us that God has a problem with us, and that's a big problem. That doesn't need a drum roll. That needs the, the drums of Gondor or whatever, you know. <laughs> what was the really bad place in uh, Lord of the Rings? It, it's, it, it's bad news. God has a problem with us. I, I am amazed. I am amazed. If I were to say to you, I bet I could do an experiment. I, I can't now, I've blown it now. But I could do an experiment. I could, at different times after the service, I could ask five of you. Hey, can I speak to you a minute in the office? And four of you would say, what did I do? And I'm like, I, come on. I, this is good stuff. Or I want you to pray about something or want to share. But we just automatically. And yet we go through life as if God's. Oversight of us is meaningless. What's the big deal? When God has a problem with us, it's a big problem. Remember two months ago, three or four months ago, we were, we were talking about the fact that all humanity is divided into two families. All are in Adam's family. Some are adopted into Jesus' family. And those two families are the only two families really on the earth. All the divisions are broken down in Christ. So we're either in Adam's family or we're in Jesus' family. The default position in America seems to be, look, I was born already right with God. As long as I don't mess it up. If my good works outweigh my bad works, then in the end, I will be okay. I'll be saved. That's not what Scripture teaches us. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, the wrath of God is upon us from the moment that we're born. And unless something is done about it, it remains on us. What's to be done about it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. The Apostle Paul provides a very systematic treatment of the gospel in the book of Romans. I was thinking about that as I'm reading 2 Corinthians. And it feels like Paul's kind of all over the place. And in fact, it was quite an epiphany for me on two or three things that I've held to for a long time. I'm like, you know, and I've read 2 Corinthians many, many times. But I'm like, wow, it's just not... I don't think I can hold to that particular attitude anymore because it, the Apostle Paul has the exact opposite ad, attitude. And I used to think, well, that's bad, but here he is exhibiting it. And, and so I, I, I learned a lot, but I was contrasting 2 Corinthians with the book of Romans. It is systematic. I mean, it is A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now, I mentioned this recently, but I'll say it again because it's, it's really important to understand this. If you're using the Romans road to help somebody come to Christ, to, to know about Jesus, you start out in Romans 3.23, right? 
then you go to 623, then you go to 58, then you go, why didn't he just put it one right after the other? I mean, why do we have to kind of jump around? Because it's not as clean cut as we want it. It's very, very much the same message that we all preach, but it's not structured that way in Scripture. In spite of me saying that, Romans is a very systematic approach to the gospel. The meaning of the gospel. If you understand the book of Romans, you understand a lot about the Christian life. And you understand very much about the gospel. And in the first three chapters, he spends most of the time establishing man's sinfulness and God's wrath. Not only against sin, but against sinners. It is poured out, justly poured out on sinners. A lot of people want to reject this truth because they just don't think they're nearly as bad as a lot of people they know. And, and again, we're big in the comparisons. We like to compare ourselves with those who are not as talented as we are or not as industrious as we are. But we especially like to compare ourselves with those who are not as good as we are. How many times this week in your home, in your dorm room, at your school... Did you talk about how bad somebody else was? How many times did you say something like, well, I just don't think that's right. I would never do that. We do it all the time, day in and day out, and we ought to know better. But if you're comparing yourself with somebody else and thinking, I'm better than this person, so I should be all right, get to heaven, (coughs) then you're really in trouble. So you want to do a comparison? How do you stack up with God? Hmm, not so good. Look, some people are going to say, well, look, okay, I hear what you're saying, but then they'll deflect, and and you've got to go there. Because these are legitimate questions. It's not like this is just an excuse to not talk about the real thing. People say, oh, look, how could a loving God let so many innocent people die in the fire or in that tornado or... Whatever, you fill in the blank. And, and this is an opportunity at the right time. Look, if you do this at the wrong time, oh my, it, it does more harm than good. But at some point you can gently ask, here's the question, are any of us innocent? Usually these conversations are philosophical in nature. You know, you're just kind of back and forth. It's not like specific. It's not like somebody said, well, my child was taken from me how could that innocent little child be taken from me don't say it in that case but if you've got just a general philosophical conversation it's a good thing to get people to think really and truly are there any innocent people we have a problem with God and it's a big problem that involves separation from him for all eternity look this is probably the trickiest part of the gospel to know how to navigate. Uh, Some people don't see their need for God and when you share this truth with them, they're not going to be happy. Oh yeah? Well, who do you think you are to tell me that? Uh, But look, they have to hear it at some point. It's okay. You have to tell people you have a need and apart from Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. You wouldn't say it exactly like that, but you know the point that I'm making. That's what they're hearing. And they've got to hear it. Got to hear the bad. 
before you hear the good, my daughter Liz, when she was about four years old, three or four years old, she was very shy. And so she was so shy that she wouldn't even pray to God. She'd whisper to me and then I would pray. And she said, some of my friends aren't saved. And I said, Lord, some of Liz's friends aren't saved. She said, and some of them are lost. And I'm thinking, well, theologically minded. I said, and some of Liz's friends are lost, and we pray that you'll help them to know Jesus. And she said, and we can't find them. Uh, but look, you've got to know you're lost before you can be found, right? You've got to come to grips that I'm not good enough. I never can be good enough. In fact, I've got a disease that will not allow me. To find my way to God. I can't climb the ladder. I'm crippled. And we all are. All of us. Some people need to hear it. Some will be like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Who saw his sin and his need for God. In a moment. The moment that the earthquake broke open all the jail cells. And he fell trembling to his knees. And asked Paul and Silas. Sirs what must I do to be saved? In fact, many who are ready to hear the gospel have already seen the gravity of their sin. Which is why you don't have to present every single one of these points every time. Because some people are like, yeah, yeah, I got that. I'm a sinner. What, what can I do? What, 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 what? I just need help. If they have reached that point, they're ready to hear the next point. And they ought to hear it whether they're ready or not. God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to live and die for us. This is the crux of the gospel. It's important after establishing that our sin has separated us from God to help people understand why it was necessary for Jesus to live a perfect life so that he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice and substitute for sin. In fact, after Adam's sin, only God in the flesh could live such a life. Remember, we, we talked about Adam. Once Adam sinned, we were all born with that sin on ourselves. And the question is, do we die because of Adam's sin? Are we judged because of Adam's sin or because of our own sin? Well, the answer is yes. It's more Adam's sin than it is our sin. It doesn't matter whether we live the best life imaginable. We have this condition that separates us from God for eternity. And, and that's why Jesus is called the second Adam. Because he got right what Adam messed up. And if Adam, Adam hadn't messed it up, I would have. I'm, I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Um, so Jesus comes and lives life the way that it was meant to be lived. In perfect, complete obedience to his father's command. In perfect obedience to the law. He fulfilled every jot and tittle. He dotted every I, crossed every T. Everything was perfect. I cannot overemphasize the centrality of the cross of Christ in the gospel presentation. That's why I said earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's just so important for the presentation of the gospel. It's the great exchange. For our sake, God the Father made him Jesus to become sin for us, it says in some translations. That's what it means. To be sin. Who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now look, we all have our little analogies, our, our illustrations of ways of, of trying to help people understand the gospel. Here's what I do with this verse. This is what we have to be in order to stand in God's presence un, um, without sin and without any kind of judgment or condemnation from God. We have to be just like this. Unfortunately, we're like this. But in the exchange at the cross, God made, and it was God the Father whose plan was being followed. Jesus was obedient. God the Father made Jesus to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Even though he was sinless, he became sin for us. A perfect God demands perfection from those who will stand in his presence. We're sinful and dirty and thus ineligible to stand before him. He was perfect and when he died on the cross, the wrath of God that was again justly directed toward us fell on Jesus. <clears throat> and, and, and again, another thing, where's that cross? I, I like to think about when I, when I trust Jesus, when I repent of my sins and trust Jesus, it's like I'm hiding behind the cross and all the wrath comes on. It, it's like a fire and somehow you find a place of protection or or. Gunshots are coming and you're behind the rock, you know. It's, it's like it falls on Jesus instead of you. The wrath of God fell on him. He took our sin upon himself and in return, when we believe, we receive his righteousness. The righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us. That's why I said a few weeks ago about Charles Finney, who preached the sermon... The foolishness of the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness of sinful men and women. That's heresy to say that. It, it, God's righteousness was imputed. It was counted to us. It's almost like, you know, I want to go uh, to some activity in Fayetteville. And I don't have a ticket to get in. And I go with Russ Strand. And it's like they're saying... Uh, you're with Russ, you're good, come on in. Jesus' righteousness is what makes us eligible to stand in the presence of God. One of the ways that I like to help people understand what Jesus did for us is, it, it, and look, I know you've, those of you who've been here, you've heard me say this several times, but <clears throat> I like to say it every so often because, because of our place, we have people in and out all the time, new people. This is just one of the ways to engage people um, with the gospel is to say, you ever thought about what Jesus meant when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he's on the cross and he's crying out, my God, my God. Wasn't he God? Wasn't he doing the Father's will? Well, yes. Look, first of all, <clears throat> Jesus is quoting the opening lines to Psalm 22. And there's so much more in this that I'm sharing right now, but it is at least this, that God, Jesus is crying out, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father has turned his back on Jesus. All of the Father's wrath was being poured out on Jesus. Why? Because our sin was upon him, because your sin was upon him. The thing that you did earlier today that you're like, ah, on the way to church, I, you know, I got frustrated. I got upset with somebody. 
and I said something I shouldn't have said. I had a wrong thought, or I did this, or I did that. The least sin you've ever done to the worst sin that's ever been committed was on Jesus. And the Father is pouring out His wrath <laughs> on sin. I'll usually say something like from Habakkuk 1.13, God is too holy to look upon sin with favor. And so when our sin is on Jesus, the Father turns away from Him. And Jesus bore our sin and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me ask you this. What had Jesus done to be on that cross? Nothing. It was the greatest injustice the world has ever known. And what, you know what, was, what would appear incredibly unjust is for the Father to turn away. But if He was going to be both just and the justifier of sinners... There had to be a payment for our sin. We'll explain, I'll explain that more later from Romans 3. But in order for God to be, be honest and faithful to his character and still justify sinful individuals and consider them to be good in our, uh, his presence, our sin had to be paid for. And that's what was happening at the cross. Once recently, when I explained this, uh, a person I was sharing with said, I've never heard it put that way before. You know what? None of us is able to understand this truth unless God opens our hearts and minds to receive it. So in your witnessing endeavors, constantly be praying. God, help people to understand. Help them to know. When you've shared this wonderful news, then you're ready for the next step. Number four, in the resurrection, God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. You don't see this very often in a gospel presentation. And again, it's just a truth that you need to understand as you're talking with people. Uh, without a resurrected and living Jesus, there is no salvation. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of all people, we're the most miserable if there's no resurrection. Living like we do and there's no resurrection, uh, it makes no sense. And at the end of Romans 4, Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, you remember Jesus right before he died said, it is finished. Could be translated paid in full. And then at the resurrection, it's like God saying, I accept that payment for sin. How is that possible? Once again, because of our union with Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And he's pleased. So what should we do with these, this good news? Believe it just as fast as we can. Number five, we are called to repent of our sins and believe that Jesus died for us and to acknowledge him as Lord of our lives. Look, I'm going to follow up on this. I just saw this yesterday. I saw a quote from Tim Keller that says, Without the gospel, we hate ourselves and not our sin. That's a great word. And it really explains repentance. That we stand before the Lord and say, I am exactly the kind of sinner that you say that I am. And I know I deserve judgment. Please forgive me of my sins. But then you can't stop there. You, you, you have to tell God that you believe that Jesus took your place on the cross. And that you put your faith and trust in Him. 
And with the Lord's help, you will live for him every day of your life. He as Lord of your life. We're all going to mess up. But our desire every time when we repent, at the first time when we come to Christ for salvation or every time after that, when we repent of our sin as believers, our desire ought to be, Lord, I want to live for you for the rest of my life, knowing my weak and, and frail condition. Live through me, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, give me that kind of life that you have called me to live. That's what it means to believe the gospel. And that's one of the ways that you share Christ with others, telling them how to be saved. Let's pray. Father, um, I am just eagerly anticipating home group this afternoon. When I get to hear from my brothers and sisters how they share Christ and some of the different ways and that they have been able to help people understand uh, these basic truths that go into a gospel presentation. And, and, and things that meant a lot to them when they got saved. Lord, all of us, all of us in every home group is going to say thank you for sharing this marvelous truth with us through your servants. We're all going to be grateful that Jesus bore the wrath of God, received the wrath of God upon him so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities to share Christ this week, whether it be small or great. I pray that you would help us to never be discouraged because we don't see people come to Christ. You don't, we don't have any idea whether we're, we're sowing or watering. We know that you give the increase. So, Lord, uh, as we conclude this service, may our hearts be on fire to tell others about Jesus. And Lord, one of the ways that we do indeed share Christ with others is through our actions. It's, it, it's never good to have actions without words. And even as we take this benevolence offering, we're, we're blessed to know that the deacons who, who are so faithful in, in administering this uh, fund tell people about Jesus when they help with material needs. So may we give with generous and glad and grateful hearts for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as you receive this benediction from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.